This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've been talking an awful lot for an awfully long time about Stelco and the pensioners and and, and everything that they've been working so hard to keep uh, from their original deal and such as this company goes from one hand to another to another to another. And uh, again, there's light at the end of the tunnel with Bedrock Industries uh, officially taking over Stelco as of this Saturday. Uh, Earlier this month, an Ontario judge approved the sale of Stelco to Bedrock. The goal with this sale is to make Stelco, uh, as they're saying, uh, the employer of choice again in Hamilton. To talk more about all of this, uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Marvin. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Scott. Sorry about being the Lone Leaf fan in your house. In my <laughs> father's case, it was the other way around. He was a Chicago fan, so I became a Leaf fan so I could contradict him. Well, see, that's unusual because, you know, back in the day, I mean, everybody was a Leaf fan. It's just lately, you know, well, I guess maybe the last 40 years we've sort of subsided a bit. <laughs> I know, but we're, there's hope now. There's a new young roster there, and hopefully, you know, we won't... Hope we, springs eternal. <laughs> exactly. So tell everybody what you were involved with and how you had the opportunity to speak to these people uh, yesterday. Certainly. So um, yesterday in Hamilton was the Bay Area Economic Summit, co-hosted by the two chambers of commerce, the Hamilton and Burlington Chambers of Commerce. And they were able to uh, talk to a gentleman named David Cheney. David Cheney is the managing partner, managing partner of Bed Rock Industries, and they said, look, we're holding this summit in Hamilton. Uh, how about you come and say a few words to the audience? He said, well, you know, I'm really busy trying to make this deal happen. He's been living out of hotels here for the last two weeks and another week yet to go before this is all finalized. I don't really have the time to put together the speech, but I'm prepared to do some sort of a, an interactive uh, chat, if you will. And so they, uh, the two chambers asked if I would be available yesterday afternoon to host that chat, and I had the chance to sit down with him and, and if you can call it an intimate chat in front of 250 people and talk a little bit about uh, what is Bedrock's plans, who is Bedrock, and where are they planning to go with all of this. Uh, it only took 15, 20 minutes. It was a full agenda day, but I think it was a very illuminating conversation. So what did you find out? What were some of the key questions you asked? Well, first, I went back. So Bedrock is not an old company. Bedrock was formed in February 2016. It was formed in Miami, Florida, although its head office today is in New York. And so I was asking, what was the, what was the mission or what was the vision behind the formation of this? Uh, Mr. Cheney, along with a fellow named Alan Kestebaum and Lindsay Goldberg, they're sort of the principals behind this. They formed the company to look for opportunities in the mining and metals sectors, broadly speaking. And very quickly, as they saw what was going on in North America, they zoomed in on steel, and specifically Stelco. They felt this was a company that had a a good, if we want to call it a good architecture. There was strong beams, but there were other problems within the company, but problems they thought they could... uh, could do something with. So this is what got them interested just 14 months ago, 15 months ago, uh, in Stelco and got them engaged in this uh, uh, creditor protection process. Uh, Why do they feel this can be a success? I mean, uh, people in Hamilton have been watching this play out for years and years. What's different now? Yeah, so... I would tell you part of it is a corporate philosophy. Now, this is, this is not saying that U.S. still didn't have this philosophy, too, but Bedrock, uh, from our conversation yesterday, is very interested on keeping what's called a clean balance sheet. In other words, not taking on any more debt than it feels it can handle, uh, getting people to pay things on time, not having a lot of outstanding accounts receivables, and they're very much focused on profitability. Now, this creditor protection process, uh, and I'm not saying this was all motivated by Bedrock itself, 
But what we're seeing emerge on the weekend is a company that has has lost two, what I'll call unlimited liabilities. One would be the environmental concerns about the land. Bedrock said, look, we didn't cause the problem, therefore we don't feel we should be cleaning up the problem. And they basically got you and I and the Ontario government to take that over through the land trust. They're only going to lease back the land they need to operate here in Hamilton, and the rest of it is somebody else's problem. And then the second thing was around the pensions and the pension deficit, we estimate around 800 and $50 million of a deficit there. They're prepared to contribute $300 million over roughly the next 20, million, uh, 20 years to that, but they're saying, we, we, can, we didn't cause the deficit, we can't fix the deficit, and so they found this other way through the land corporation that's going to remediate and sell the land to hopefully top up the pension fund that way. So by jettisoning or eliminating those two unlimited liabilities, they've got a company now that's emerging from creditor protection that's in a much better position going forward to operate well and operate in the black. So where does this leave pensioners, Marvin? Well, pensioners. So uh, we have to distinguish between the pensioners here in Hamilton and the pensioners down in Nanticoke. There is no change for the pensioners down in Nanticoke. In the deal that was signed, they get all of their post-employment benefits, they, they continue to collect their pensions, so on and so forth. In Hamilton, the deal that's been struck is that there's going to be $20 million a year for the next 10 years put into a fund, and the union is going to administer this to deliver those post-employment benefits to employees, to retirees, excuse me. So it's going to handle the drugs, the, the um, hospitalizations, those, those sorts of things that were there. The big question is, is $20 million a year enough? The official response from the union is it will be tight. It will be tight to give people all of their post-employment benefits they were used to at the full level. So we may see some changes. In other words, some drugs might be eliminated or there may be some reductions on, on some of the care. We do not know that, how much of that's going to happen. And the other deal that Bedrock made was that in any year that they have a, a cash flow greater than $200 million, they're willing to top up that $20 million, uh, towards those benefits a little bit more. So it may be in the first year or two things are a little lean, but if they are successful at growing this company and turning it around, eventually we'll get back to where we be- were before. But I think initially, on July 1st, uh, there will be some restoration of the benefit, ben- uh, pension benefits and post-employment benefits, excuse me, but it will not be quite at the full level that people were used to. You were talking about uh, the difference between U.S. Steel and Bedrock. Uh, what about different times and how the economy was during U.S. Steel days and Bedrock days? Is it different? Is there more opportunity? Is right. it a so, brighter horizon for Bedrock? Right. So yesterday at, at the uh, economic summit, uh, Mr. Cheney was very clear in saying that he wants Stelco to be an employer of choice. He wants to restore the luster to this iconic firm. He acknowledged its history in, Can- in Hamilton's past and that they don't want to disrupt that. So these are great things to say. Now, of course, actions will speak louder than the words, but I was very reassured by his point of view. I asked him, for instance, around Donald Trump. You know, he's going to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure, but he has said it's going to go to American companies. So, you know, is Stelco, as it emerges from creditor protection, a Canadian company? Is it an American company? And and he, we got a bit of a laugh by asking a question about Donald Trump. And Mr. Cheney said, well, we're, we're going to take advantage of this volatility when it's to our benefit to play the American ownership card. We'll play that. When it's to our benefit to be a Canadian-operated company, we'll play that card. He believes, even though there's going to be volatility in steel prices and volatility in demand, he believes that he and his partners can find opportunities and reap 
position Stelco to take advantage of those and grow the company. I'm, again, I love that kind of confidence. I love that kind of assurance. Time will tell whether they've actually got the, the magic formula trapped in a bottle. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, said, what, quote, one of our goals is to make Stelco the employer of choice again in Hamilton. Uh, again, sounds good, but I'm sure a lot may have been rolling their eyes as well. Is this realistic? Well, employer of choice in a certain sector. So clearly we have other employers of choice, the the two hospitals, the university, the community college, the education sector. There are employers of choice in many different sectors. Uh, I think they'd have a way to go. They're they're clearly starting. This is a a company they're inheriting uh, under U.S. Steel Canada that had three lockouts in the last uh, eight years, Uh, lockouts that weren't for a week or two, but in some cases extended nearly 12 months. I think it's going to take a while to reverse that, but it's nice that that's their goal. I, I, again, I want to light a candle rather than curse the darkness here. They're, they're not coming in to say, well, we're looking for more concessions and we're going to cut, 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 cut. In fact, uh, yesterday, uh, another partner, Alan Kestenbaum, couldn't be in Hamilton because he was speaking at something called the Steel Survival Strategies Conference in New York. And he was asked about uh, uh, Stelco there, and he said that he, he really sees some tremendous opportunities in the steel industry. He wants to make up for some lost investment. He really feels that in the last five, six years there were some necessary investments in Stelco, both in Hamilton and in Nanticoke, that didn't happen. So they're going to start with those, and then he wants to do some things like uh, energy recovery, carbon dioxide capture and storage, uh, really very modern, high-technology things that had been overlooked at Stelco for the last decade. So, again, I'm, they're saying all the right things. They are bright people, and they clearly know what they're doing here. Now the question will be whether they can follow this up with action. What, what does your gut tell you here, Marvin? Well, I asked them another question. I said, uh, all right, you know, Stelco is your first acquisition. What are you going to do with it? Are you planning to make more acquisitions? Are you going to grow? And uh, this one caught Mayor Eisenberger's eyes. You could actually see it, kind of the eyebrows Mm. jump right up. This is what Mr. Cheney said. Although we're a privately funded company, we have $500 million in committed assets and access to $2 billion, $2 billion for other deals in the future. Uh, I tried to get, get him to talk about Algoma. He didn't seem to specifically want to address Algoma. But they seem to want to get into this market, and they want to get into it in a big way, to, to hear that they're not there on a shoestring. So if I can take you back to the last time Stelco emerged from creditor protection, Appaloosa Capital, Sunrise, these were the people who owned the company back in those days, and they seemed to be doing it just on a shoestring and then very eagerly needed to flip it to somebody else. These people don't seem to be there on a shoestring. They seem to have the kind of resources necessary to grow this company, not to ever get it in your head that it will become another U.S. deal on that size, but that this is not a company that day one is going to be struggling to meet the payroll. Uh, is steel a viable industry in Canada? I mean, there was a time when people, nobody was lining up to buy this company. <laughs> well, I have to spread that into two different parts. Is steel a, is, is a viable company in Canada? The answer is no. We do not consume, uh, consume enough steel to just have this company operate on domestic demand. This company, from the beginning, is going to have to be serving broader markets than Canada. So we need to have this company selling into the United States, but also selling on international markets. Now, the fact that these are Americans who have a history in international mining and metals work, Mr. Cheney himself, for instance, he'd worked with Wells Fargo, Deutsche Bank, J.P. Morgan. These are all 
big, well-known international companies, it, it gives me great hope that they are going to be able to position this company in that international marketplace. Now, to your question about people buying, it is absolutely true that here we are approaching the end of the creditor protection, and there was no lineup of people to buy the company. In a way, Bedrock, Bedrock won by default. Nobody else really wanted to put a deal on the table. I think that speaks more to the way the steel industry is today, and in particular that it's uh, under capacity, meaning that it's it, there's about operating about 75% of the capacity is out there. No one needs the additional steel-making capacity offered by Nanticoke and Hamilton. But that's today, and this is an industry that can go from feast to famine. It was not that many years ago. It was roughly eight years ago, in fact, that every ounce of steel you could produce was being sold in the marketplace. The trick in this kind of an industry is when the good times are good, you make as much money as you can and bank it to get you through the quieter times. Uh, this is their gamble, that there's a better time ahead. And I think it's buoyed by this idea of all this infrastructure spending, not just in the United States, not just in Canada, but around the rest of the globe. It's mm. got to be a catch-up period coming, and when that time comes, they're well-positioned to take advantage of it. So this is a good deal for Bedrock. This is a great deal for Bedrock, and, and I think it's actually a great deal for Hamilton. Mr. Cheney pointed out when I asked him a bit about this, he said, well, I think most people would feel that there was no big winner, that everybody lost something. Yes, the retirees didn't quite get everything they wanted. No, the, the government didn't get everything they wanted. The city didn't get everything they wanted. We didn't get everything we wanted. The fact that everybody lost something, that might mean that that was the best deal possible, that there was no clear winner in this. So, you know, I, I think... Uh, going forward, th this is a, a, uh, a better alternative than what would have been there if nobody stepped forward, which would have been bankruptcy. And bankruptcy wouldn't have been devastating for Hamilton, but for the pensioners, they certainly would have seen reduced benefits and, and reduced pensions. This is at least a lifeline to keep the things going. How, do, uh, how does DeFasco feel about this? And, like, obviously that company, ArcelorMittal, uh, Mittal, DeFasco has managed to keep it alive and profitable. How, how do they feel about this deal? Well, I, I don't know, Scott, so I can only speculate and say to you that um, the, these are the neighbor corporations. They've engaged in something we call coopetition, so they cooperate on some things, they compete on some others. I, I actually don't think they wanted to see the company fail. I don't think they wanted, uh, this is not an industry where, um, you know, you're sort of, like the way you saw it on Dallas, the TV show Dallas, that you're rooting for the other guy to fail. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're pleased to see it come back, and I suspect... Uh, not July 1st or July 2nd, but within the next two or three months, probably the found the owners of Bedrock will have a sit-down with ArcelorMittal, talk about where they might have some common interests. You may actually may see some new things come out now because you see a way forward. There was no point in the last year and a half when, when uh, Stelco was in creditor protection for ArcelorMittal to talk about new deals or new opportunities because it may not be here in a few months. Why would you waste your time doing that? Now that you have this new breadth of ownership, there may be some opportunities for the two of them to do something jointly and it improve both companies. So I, I think they're happy to see it come back into the marketplace. Uh, I should also point out, I asked him about CEO, the current CEO, Mike McQuaid. Uh, they're going to keep him on. They gave him great credit for keeping the company going during a very difficult restructuring period, and they're rewarding his loyalty over the last two and a half years by having him continue on as CEO. These other people, Mr. Cheney, Mr. Kestenbaum, will be hands-on, and they'll be in the city more often, out of New York, but they'll come up here more often. But Mike McQuaid is somebody that everybody knows. He's going to keep the company going forward. What about hiring? 
Uh, initially, uh, they didn't say that they were looking for somebody day one. I think, again, you've got to take the reins of the buggy, so to speak, and, and get it moving again. Uh, I suspect we'll hear about some employment opportunities, though I suspect there'll be more in Nanticoke. I think that's really where they're looking to expand the production. Hamilton will remain a finishing operation for them. I, I tossed another question at Mr. Cheney, which he didn't bite at, and that was many people in Hamilton would love to see a blast furnace rebuilt mm. and started again here. He did say they would be looking for investment opportunities and invest where it made sense, but he didn't jump on the opportunity to say, and yes, we pledge to build a blast furnace. So I think what you're going to see is if there's any increase in production capacity, that will remain down in Nanticoke. What would happen in Hamilton's increase in finishing capacity? And again, I think it'll be there first, Nanticoke first, Hamilton later. Uh, what do you think the discussion will be five years from now? What will we be talking about on this? Well, that's, that's actually a really good question. I, I initially thought, and this is the my assumption, I guess, that I, I fed you folks in the media, is I really thought Bedrock was only looking to be a house flipper here, that they would buy the company, hold on to it for 18 months, 24 months, and flip it to somebody else. Instead, uh, after my chat with Mr. Cheney and from what I've read about Mr. Kestenbaum, I think they're in here for a slightly longer haul. Now, does that mean they're going to be here 20 years from now? No, I doubt they'll be here 20 years from now. But five years from now, I think they very well could still be operating the company. I, I think their goal, and if I can build on what Mr. Kestenbaum's past performance has been, is to grow a company to a much bigger size, not simply flip it, but grow it to a much bigger size and then seek a merger partner. That's how he basically cashes out his investment. But I think five years from now, they'll still be here. Uh, will we see, well, I'll ask you it this way, will, uh, what will the labor situation be? Will it be relatively calm for the next little while? Well, they do have, uh, so in taking over the company, they had to have um, contracts with the two locals, the one down in Nanticoke and the one here in Hamilton, and I believe they signed a three-year deal. It's even possible it was a four-year deal, So there, and there were even improvements. There were cost-of-living increases and some other benefit improvements in those contracts. So at least initially, the workers, not the retirees, but the workers, I think, are pleased with the contracts. They have a wait-and-see attitude again. Do you walk the talk or do you suddenly turn differently as you were there? So they'll be taking every day, watching closely to see what this company does. But I think for the next year or two, even three, it will be fairly quiet on the labor front, depending, of course, on the actions of this new management team. What does it say about Hamilton and its economic health that somebody is willing to say, okay, I'll give it a try? Well, I'm not sure this is unique to Hamilton. This, this, had this company been located in... Uh, you know, St. Catharines or Fort Erie, I think it was more the attractiveness of the assets of the company, the, the infrastructure, the bones of this company that attracted these Americans north. But yesterday, they, uh, Mr. Cheney, and again, maybe he was just being nice to the assembled audience. He had been able to sit in on a little of the economic summit. He liked what he heard. He liked the approach of the two mayors who also engage in what we call coopetition. Yes, ideally, we want the company to locate here, but frankly, wherever it locates in the barrier, Bay Area is good for both of us. So I, I think he liked what he heard. He liked to hear about the technology focus going on in Hamilton and Burlington, and he wants to be part of that. So I, I think even though he didn't do this specifically to have a vote of confidence in Hamilton, it's really a vote of confidence in the Stelco assets, I think he liked what he heard about this area, and I think he's learning. Uh, Mr. Cheney shared with me that um, he's from New Jersey. This is where he and his family are. He, he's actually not seen his four boys for two weeks and won't see them for another week, so he is anxious to get back to New Jersey, but he's learning about this area, and he likes what he sees.
You talked about uh, the, the Trump government and obviously chatter of protectionism. Uh, can they play both sides of the fence? Will it work to their advantage? Well, that's a, you know that's again that's a really great question, and part of it is not in their control. As you know, what does Donald Trump and his surrogates do? The fact that their head office is in New York, the fact that they are Americans and they have a lot of experience working the system. Mr. Cheney, Mr. Kestenbaum, Mr. Goldberg, they uh, they between them have nearly 75 years of experience in this sector. So I think they know how to handle the American government in many ways. Clearly until the infrastructure spending is approved and we see the legislation that goes with that and what restrictions there are, it's hard to know, but if anyone has a chance to play this game, of you know, waving the one flag when it's the right thing to do and waving the other flag when it's the right thing to do. I think these guys are well-positioned to do that. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, talking about bedrock industry taking over Stelco. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have been hearing ever since uh, the U.S. election campaign started about a travel ban uh, of certain countries uh, in the Middle East. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, uh, as soon as he got into office, tried to uh, install such a ban and, of course, uh, ran into legal difficulty. Now a new partial ban has been instated. How does this affect Canadians? Uh, To talk more about all of this, Evan Green is with us, senior partner at Green & Spiegel Immigration Law Firm, and is with us now. Hello. How are you doing, Evan? Good to talk to you. I'm good. How are you? Fine, thanks. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. Evan, what is the basic differences between what Donald Trump initially tried to pass and what has passed now? Well, big differences. Initially, the ban was a blanket ban for anyone traveling on a passport from Sudan, Syria, Iran, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, and Iraq across the board. You couldn't enter if you were traveling on that passport. And that travel ban caused not only people who were visiting the United States, but people who were working on valid work permits in the United States who were out of the country, people who were studying in the United States, as well as green card holders. Our firm was actually involved in a case on a family that had been sponsored by their brother. And in the United States, it takes about 10, 12 years to sponsor a family member of a brother. Hmm. They got their visas after 12 years. They were on the plane coming over from Syria, landed in Philadelphia, and were returned hmm. to Syria because of the initial travel ban. Okay? Even though they had visas issued, they had been vetted, gone through the entire process over 12 years, and they returned back because it was immediate, it was chaotic, and it affected thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. This new partial travel ban doesn't affect the same groups in the same way. Firstly, Iraq's come on the list, off the list. It's off the list together. As well, the, what has the Supreme Court said is, if you have a bona fide relationship in the United States, you will be able to travel. Now, we don't have any hard and fast rules on that, but one can assume that if you're a green card holder, if you've got a work permit, if you're studying in the United States, those are pretty strong ties to someone 
in the United States, and you'll be able to travel with a valid visa, okay? Mm -hmm. Where the gray area occurs is what happens if you're a landed immigrant from Iran and you got a business meeting in the United States. Is that a bona fide relationship? I don't know. You'd think it would be, but don't know. It's at the discretion of the... That was my next question. Is this all at the discretion of the border guards? Sure. Your first point of entry? Yep, for sure. I mean, my advice to everybody from day one of this travel ban is not to drive across the border, but only do this at the airports. Because in Canada, we have a unique thing with the United States. We have what's called pre-flight inspection. So when you're traveling to the United States and you're flying out of Toronto, you go through U.S. immigration in Toronto. When you land, it's domestic flight. You just get off the plane. Yeah. Okay? So you're vetted before. So if there's any issues and you don't like what's going on, you can just walk out. Say, I've had it. I don't want to go to the United States. And you withdraw your admission and out you go. At the border, you're on U.S. soil, and they have different rights, and they can hold you. It's a whole different ballgame. Hmm. Uh, why was the first ban deemed illegal? Well, the, the general feeling was that it was under the Constitution of the United States, you cannot direct uh, laws at a particular ethnic group. Right. And it was felt that it was the Muslim ban. Right. My goodness, the President of the United States has even called it the Muslim ban. Yeah. So the courts, lower-ranking courts, said, yes, it is a Muslim ban. You've called it a Muslim ban. We're not going to initiate this. So it was struck down. Then there was round two, which is the current one before the court, where Iraq came on the list because they were just too offended, and they're an ally in the fight against terrorism. Uh, and it was, as a result of that, uh, it's made its way up to the Supreme Court now, and they've instituted part of it in that the uh, president has the right to protect foreign borders. And so they're going to hear the case in October when the court reconvenes. But until such time, landed immigrants from these countries may face difficulty. So this isn't over yet? Oh, no, no, it's not over. It's going to, it hasn't been hurt. Mm-hmm. This was the sort of the first victory that the Trump administration had had with respect to this, because all other courts had thrown it out. Wasn't there an easier way to do this? Well, the, the, the part that, uh, you know, as an immigration lawyer I find amusing is if you're from Sudan, Syria, Iran, Somalia, uh, and Libya, it ain't easy to get a visa to the United States. And most of these people go through extensive, extensive vetting. Uh, I mean, now it's very common if you're from these countries and you're applying for visas, they ask you for all your social media accounts and the access to those accounts and your passwords. That's part of the process now. They're asking for this. Hmm. So extreme vetting is going on. And it wasn't easy to get visas from from these countries. So in my mind, it's just, you know, politics. Because, you know, it sounds good, you know, protecting the United States. All these things have been in place for quite some time. Yeah, but what a big mismatch to throw everybody in while you try to work out the details. I mean, this should have all been done ahead of time as opposed to throwing everybody's life into a mess. Well, you know, and again, not to mention, oh, yeah, the PR nightmare of the whole thing. Oh, well, you know. But, that, but again, that's, that's just not the way this administration Exactly. <laughs> that's a whole other issue. Uh, how does this affect Canadians now with this well, new Canadian version? Canadian citizens, we are informed, uh, it should not affect at all. Now, it's interesting to note that, you know, on your Canadian passport, it shows place of birth. So it does show that if you're born in Syria, it's on your passport. And you can expect, you know, increased screening. 
uh, if you are from that part of the world. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but you know, if you're traveling from Europe, let's say you're a Brit, there is a special program to enter the United States where you get sort of a pre-clearance called an ESTA. It's an uh, electronic travel authorization, and you avoid applying for visa. Last year, they canceled that availability for anyone who had visited pretty much any of these countries in the last five years, and they had to go in and apply for visas. Mm -hmm. So they weren't treated the same way. So that hasn't passed yet for Canadian citizens who may have visited their home country, but I think we can expect increased scrutiny for these people. Um, how has or how will this affect business, both in the United States and people traveling from these other countries, whether it's through Canada or not? How does it affect the business traveler? Well, the business traveler coming from these countries may not be able to enter the United States. Um, whether or not, you know, somebody who has a letter from a firm that, you know, I'm going to visit Microsoft or whatever the case may be from Microsoft. Is that going to be enough to establish a bona fide relationship? Don't know, but it's certainly going to affect the availability of these people to enter the United States. No question about it. Where is this going? Where do you see this a year from now, two years from now? (laughs) Well, interesting. The Canadian government, I think, is taking the right tact here. Uh, Canada recently introduced a new program on June 12th to attract IT professionals to Canada. I mean, this travel ban, to me, you know, it was so difficult getting visas from these countries, unless you had a very significant reason for going to the United States, you weren't going in and applying for a U.S. visa. Like an Iranian who wants to apply for a U.S. visa who lives in Iran, there's no U.S. embassy in Iran. They have to go, the closest place is Dubai, to even apply for the visa. So, it's so difficult that people weren't really going unless they had a really, really strong reason to go. And because of that, Canada has a huge opportunity to take advantage of this scenario and say, hey, Canada's open for business. We'll take your best and brightest. And the government recognized that, introduced this new program called the Global Skills Initiative, and hopefully the result of this travel ban will be a huge benefit for Canada because people do need to travel and they do want access and Canada's a great country. So why not come here? How will this change refugee claims to the United States? I mean, now, uh, what options do you have? Well, (laughs) refugees are, you know, get thrown into the same boat all the time as immigrants. It's not the same boat. One must remember what a refugee is and what they need to prove. That is somebody who is persecuted based on their race, religion, ethnicity, or membership in a particular group, and they're being given protection. Okay? That is not the same as somebody who's applying to immigrate or somebody who's got business interests. It is not the same. And the effect of this will be that probably people who would have claimed refugee status or asylum, as it's known in the United States, won't be eligible to do so. Now, we're, we're, we're pretty much protected where we are in Canada because it's very difficult to get here from mm-hmm. any of these countries. Yeah. So the people who are making those claims, I mean, we've seen it across certain border points. Right, right now, between Canada and the United States, we have the same... Safe, uh, safe third country party agreement whereby you are required under this law to make an asylum claim in the United States or in Canada as the first place that you stopped. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what the law says. Unless you are 
in Canada. So what has happened is, and what we're hearing about, is that if you show up at the border and say, I want to make an asylum case in Canada, and you're already in the United States, they'll send you back. Yeah. The only rule around that would be is if you illegally enter Canada, and that's what was happening, and that's why we had the problems in Manitoba, because there was a border point there that people were going across, which wasn't an official border. Once you were in Canada, you could make a ref claim, and that's what we were seeing. So it is part and parcel of that, because the feeling is that if you're from these countries, you aren't going to get the same benefits as you used to. So are the people who are crossing in places like Emerson, are they refugees or, or are they asylum seekers, asylum shoppers? Well, they are asylum seekers. Whether they meet the definition of refugee has to be determined. Okay, And that's what we would do here in Canada uh, if they do cross that way. Whether they are or not, we don't know. What is the solution to the issue of the porous border and people crossing? Uh, what are your thoughts on the safe third-party agreement? What should, how, do we, how do we resolve this? Because obviously, if they do it legally through the border, uh, they're sent back. Uh, and well, as you mentioned, this just encourages those going through the fence. So what, Here's the thing. I mean, the United States is a free and democratic country. They should be just fine making their asylum cases in the United States. In the same way, if they're in Canada, they should be able to do so. It's the perception and, you know, the spin that is being played out. In fact, other than this tiny, well, I call it this little travel ban, there's really been no change in immigration law. But, we're, you know, we're hearing all these stories that, you know, oh, they're, yeah, they're, rounding up, they're rounding up uh, illegal immigrants, they're sending them home, and, you know, if, if, the if they get sent they home... Actually, if they the get sent home... Down. Yeah. The numbers are down. Firstly, the rhetoric is so high that people aren't attempting to yeah. cross the border, number one. And number two is they were higher under the Obama administration than they are under the Trump administration. So a lot of it's spin. Hmm. A lot of it's been, like I said, you know, the, the immigration laws themselves, nothing's changed. He's announced that, you know, he's renegotiating NAFTA. He, he's looking at the H-1B program. These are all various programs under immigration benefits. Nothing's changed. So, so should the third, uh, safe third party agreement be scrapped? Not at this point. I don't think so. How, how can it be? I mean, we have a free and democratic country and we're a free and democratic country. And that was the basis of it, unless you just don't support the... The, the idea of, you know, you can choose mm-hmm. where you can make your asylum case. I mean, my sort of feeling is an asylum seeker is somebody whose house is on fire. And when your house is on fire, you go to the f- next door neighbor and say, the first place you arrive and say, help. Mm-hmm. You don't decide, you know, the house three doors down has a nicer basement. I want to go there. And that's, you know, that's what the third party agreement was about. Choosing where you wanted to make your claim. Mm-hmm. So that's a different discussion. The one thing I'll say is the travel ban, whether it gets affected in its full form or not, has opened a Pandora's box. It has created fear in all the communities. And it's across the board. It's not just people from these countries. I mean, if you're a wealthy Indian who is looking to send their child to school abroad, and typically these kids are, you know, the best and the brightest, okay? Mm-hmm. And you're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars for education. Are you looking to send them to the United States now? I don't think you are. I think you're looking at England, you're looking at Canada, you're looking at Australia, you're looking at other countries who are more accepting of immigrants. And I think that that 
is probably the biggest effect of this travel ban because it opened a Pandora's box. When do you think we'll start to see that? Because it'll take a long time for that to ripple oh, through. Oh, no, won't no. It? I, don't th- I think we're seeing it already. I think the government has said that their applications in Canada for study permits are up 25% mm. this year. Okay? It is companies are worried. Are companies in the U.S. worried? Are they concerned about it? Absolutely. If you're an Iranian professional on a work visa in the United States, and, you know, you can't find, it's very difficult to find highly qualified people these days. The company is worried about keeping you because you're saying, I'm not welcome in the United States. Can I get into Canada? Do I qualify to immigrate to Canada? We're getting those calls every single day. And if the company is not looking at protecting their talent, then the individual is going to leave. So it's a matter of you protect your talent as the employer, or they're going to go. You decide. Lots are skeptical over those crossing at places like Emerson. Is the government doing enough to be transparent? Tell us who's in, who's out, how this process is all working, how this is going to be rectified. Well, that, that's the government does give statistics based on nationalities and the acceptance rates. You know, it's interesting to note, if we look at Mexico, Mexico, about three years ago, the Harper government imposed a visa on Mexican nationals coming to Canada because Mexico became the number one refugee-producing country, okay? So they put a visa on it so that they could pre-vet people to ensure that the people that were coming were not economic migrants, but rather legitimate business people. Um, The Trudeau government took off that visa in December and said, no, you don't need that anymore. Uh, We're going to let you come without a visa. There's other things that they need to do, but you can come in without the necessity of this sort of pre-vetting. And the government's going to look at it again to see if there's a spike in Mexicans claiming refugees. So it's, it's all part and parcel of the same thing. In, you know, a refugee is someone who deserves protection, but we also have a system for regular people to immigrate, and it's not through the refugee system. It's through our selection criteria. Evan Green has been with us, senior partner at Green and Spiegel Immigration Law Firm. Evan, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've certainly heard lots about cyber attacks and interference and meddling, and and a lot of it seems to involve or hear from this part of the world, Russia or China or what have you. And now uh, we're hearing of a massive cyber attack, of course, which happened yesterday, paralyzing some uh, hospitals, government buildings, major corporations. Ukraine and Russia appeared to be the hardest hit by this hack. To talk more about all of this, Daniel Tobak is with us, CEO, Cytelligence Incorporated, an expert on cybersecurity and with us now. Hello, Danielle. How are you today? I'm excellent. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, You know, normally, Daniel, we're hearing about uh, Russia involved in this. Now it seems that Russia and Ukraine were one of the hardest hits. So where did this come from then, if it's not the hackers that are hacking? Well, you know, just because uh, Russia and Ukraine got hit, it doesn't mean that it didn't come from there. You know, I I always look from a conspiracy point of view. Could be a way to show, hey, guys, we got hit as well, so we are not the ones doing it, right? So, I mean, you always got to look at it from that way as well. Uh, But it could be uh, also Russian organized crime. And, I mean, Russia, Ukraine, uh, even Latvia, which has uh, very smart hackers there, 
they have their own internal issues as well, right? They have their own internal organized crime and hackers that are very interested in making money. Uh, so their problems are the same like the rest of the world. How So their problems are the same as the rest of the world? Absolutely. So how what would Russia or the Ukraine do to counter this? You know, and I'll tell you, most people probably don't know this little fun fact, but uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, are dealing with uh, cyber breaches on a daily basis, just like the rest of the world. It just doesn't really hit, hit our Western media. Uh, what they do, they actually have units within the government enforcement, just like we have in North America and other parts of Europe, where they're trying to battle this. So they, of course, are looking into these groups. Uh, I actually looked at a, at, a, at a chat group earlier on today, where people are actually trying to find the culprits. Some, you know, there's a discussion about this culprit being Russian origin or Ukrainian. Uh, some culprits are, are, are being connected to uh, North Korea and so on. So it's an interesting discussion that's going on online between what I call master hackers. Uh, so it appears at this point that this ori- originated in the Ukraine. Is that accurate? Um, I, I, there is no, again, in, in forensics, I always say it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. Uh, right now, there's some evidence to that that still have not been concrete yet proved. Yeah. Uh, and you talked about, you know, being a conspiracy theorist that it, you know, just because Russia was one of those hit doesn't mean that it's not originating uh, from there. What do they have to gain from this? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, 85% of this type of ransomware attacks are all financially motivated. Uh, these are not normally state-sponsored attacks. Uh, but... Uh, in this event, every every country needs a way to gain revenue, to sponsor, no pun intended, and to support their activities, their espionage activities. So what they could gain from this, it could be a financial gain from this. So now they have additional funds to perpetrate other type of espionage. Uh, or it just lets you in into other people's systems and potentially steal data and harvest more information. Uh, you said not state sponsored, uh, and again, these are just this is just speculation at this time. Uh, does that mean that it's organized crime that's behind this? Yes, eighty five percent of this type of malware attacks are uh, organized crime driven. Yeah. And how big a problem is that in Russia and the Ukraine? Uh, so again, they share our pain around the world. So about eighty five percent of all of this type of activities are organized crime. Russia, in particular, has a very high rate of organized crime. The only difference in Russia uh, compared to Western countries is that if you get caught and you're a hacker and you're organized crime, uh, you don't exactly get a very soft sell, uh, mm. you know, with maybe one inmate at McDonald's uh, three times a, a day or meat or anything of that nature. You, you're doing some hard time uh, outside of getting a good beating on the way to jail. You, you'll do some hard time. That's really the only difference. In, in, in North America in particular, we have very cushy sentences and very weak legislation against white-collar crimes such as uh, cyber hacking and so on. Unfortunately, in Russia, it, it's a lot rougher if you get caught doing this type of crime. You know, we often hear the analogy, uh, you know, just some kid in his parents' basement doing this. Uh, you know, we've certainly got the, the case of the alleged hacker here uh, out of Ancaster. Is that, is that an over-exaggeration? Is that an oversimplification of all of this? No, you know, the, the, you know, the issue is, and this is, you know, we handle roughly about 50 incidents a month. 
and they vary between different types of situations. You know, one of the problems is here in Canada in particular, we do not have what I would call super hackers. There's a lot of smart people. Uh, there are still uh, enough criminals here. But the super hackers are outside of the Canadian jurisdiction. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is uh, the jurisdictions where they are, they would like to attack Canada. They would like to attack the U.S. Very lucrative for them. But usually where they sit, the jurisdiction protects them from being extradited to the U.S. or Canada and so on. Right. Uh, we've had, we've heard of these attacks before. Uh, they come and go every so often. Anything different about this attack? Anything that uh, that stands out? So, what, what's again? What's in common with WannaCry from just uh, you know about uh, six weeks ago or so? Mm-hmm. Uh, is the commonality was that they're using the same type of protocol uh, to expose the vulnerabilities in the communication. It comes down to the file sharing protocol uh, in Microsoft, right? Uh, there is patches for that, so everybody that were smart and patched that up really would not have to worry about this. What's a little bit different about this one, again, not to get too, not to get too mumbo-jumbo, uh, is that the way it executes itself, so if you reboot your machine while the executable is there, if you actually leave the machine off, you have a way to boot up without being infected. If you do boot up while being infected, that's what actually spreads encryption to your machine so a little bit of technical uh, detail there so that's a little different than what we saw with WannaCry um, also the, the ransom is a bit lower they're looking for $300 if in, in ransom where before they were looking for uh, which was a lot more because Bitcoin went up all the way up to $3,000 a couple weeks ago yeah. so this is a little bit less they're making it a little bit easier I don't know if you noticed they're a little bit more customer service uh, focused this time <laughs> Isn't that odd? In other words, they're making it easier for you to pay your ransom. Yes. Absolutely. Well, that's good. Do how, do most just pay? How many pay? And just you know what? I just here's my money. I don't need the hassle. You know, the unfortunate part, unfortunate part, is that a lot of people do pay the ransom, and that's what actually fuels this organizations to continue and perpetrate this crime because it's easy. Nobody's going to get shot doing this, if you know what I mean. It's a lot easier than putting right. a silly mask on and robbing a bank. Um, and it's pretty lucrative, right? So they have a pretty good bank for the buck. You know, the unfortunate part is, you know, we've had some callers here from Canada who were hit with this. And, and you know, they brought us in because they wanted to make sure that, you know, even if they pay, they're going to get their information. Unfortunately, there's no guarantee for that. Um, and what we have seen, which is, again, the down law of crime, is even after you pay, you don't get your info back. So you need yeah. somebody to kind of talk to the bad guys, almost do the what I call hostage negotiation, right? So how difficult, you know, if you have to go and, and there's there's a there's a, a relationship made, even if it's only online, uh, for payment, how is this not easier, how is this not more easily tracked? You know, the unfortunate part again here, and this is where the bad guys are really betting on this, is that Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency cannot be traced. So you see right. this whole bunch of info online, somebody saying, oh, I see this wallet has now $100,000 in it and so on and so on. That information is not actually pinpointing that this is their, the bad guy's wallet where they're keeping the money or that's even their wallet as a matter of fact. It's a bit of speculation is involved. Okay? Hmm. And the reason it's difficult to pinpoint them is because they're doing everything through the dark web and everything is anonymous. So the relays, the, the IPs, the metadata that we in forensics leverage 
to get into the bottom of things and get the details, get the evidence, are basically scattered here, and you can't find them. And in some, in sometimes it's non-existent. So it makes our job very difficult of actually tracking them down. You talked earlier about uh, how it's just a case of installing updates. Is it really that simple to keep yourself protected? Just make sure you install updates. Yeah, you gotta you gotta be up to date. But I, I, you know, when I speak with organizations and I speak in front of shareholders and boards, I always explain to them: don't blame the poor IT guy because something you know is not up to snuff all the time, right? It, it, it's about a strategy, patching and making sure you're up to date. That's one of the most critical. Um, uh, strategies for any organization, training and awareness for people not to click on, 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 on fishy, phishing type emails and suspicious type communication. Just don't click on it. If you have a doubt in your mind that this looks a little bit off, pick up the phone and call. Verify. And we've seen some blazing bad guys who get an email and say, hey, John, this looks really fake. I don't think this is real. They'll actually reply, no, 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 uh, uh, Mike, this is real. It's me, John, sending you the email. Yeah. <laughs> so don't believe everything you read. That's why I say pick up the phone, a little old-fashioned, uh, but Alexander Bell was up to something when he invented the phone. Mm. Uh, pick up the phone, call the, the person to see if it's for real or not. Did we learn or do we learn anything from these attacks? Uh, is there anything we can take away from it? So that's the one big positive effect about this type of attacks, like WannaCry and this one, is the level of awareness goes up. Uh, and, you know, I feel people are more aware. People are talking about it. People uh, don't have the false sense of security that this is not going to happen to me. So we do learn. So every time that this happens, we do get better. How does the average person protect themselves? You know, is the average person at threat or is it just these big corporations? I would say the average person, you know, has a small threat uh, compared to the corporation. But the average person, as long as they keep their machine up to date uh, with patches, uh, as long as they really are aware before clicking on some attachments and so on, that's really how you protect yourself as, as, as a consumer. Uh, as a corporation, it, it's more difficult because you're going to get a bigger flow and volume of emails, so it's a little bit more difficult to control. That's why the bad guys are not really going after individuals. They're more interested in the corporation. Do countries work together on this sort of stuff? And what happens when you get, like, a, a Russia or whoever, Ukraine involved? Is there any sort of cooperation at all to try to solve this? You know, uh, there isn't as much cooperation as there should be. Uh, we don't share too much information. Everybody kind of keeping it to themselves outside of what I call news reporting. Uh, and then, you know, somebody calling someone in another country and just speaking on what I call on a personal level. There is no collaboration and information sharing, which is makes it, again, easier for the bad guys to operate. So will we find the perpetrator or is just the best thing to do make sure you're protected as opposed to going after these guys? The chances of actually finding the person behind the keyboard responsible are very slim on this level. Uh, again, uh, only time will tell. Sometimes they slip. Sometimes they get a little too cocky and they start talking about it a year down the road. Um, but uh, really the key here is to learn what I call lessons learned. Patch yourself up. Don't click on silly, suspicious emails. Verify. Be a little paranoid. 
uh, and you should be okay. <laughs> is is the same person responsible for these? Do they leave a trail that identifies who it was or the the type of person? Can you tell whether there is a common denominator behind these? So the, when you dig down and you perform what I call code forensics, uh, within the infections and so on, there will be a hint, there will be information on what I call the creator uh, and so on. Uh, so far from what we know, this particular one and WannaCry are two different people, right? Uh, but I'll give you a simple example. Four weeks ago, I was, I was, I was a speaker at a, a securities conference, and I basically showed the, in my presentation that in two, three weeks, there'll be a new attack that will occur, uh, the code name was different than this one, but I basically explained what they're doing, and I showed what the bad guys are selling. Basically, a ready-made, uh, you know, crime as a service platform for this new malware, where to collect it, how to hide the money. And so I was a little late in my prediction. It was I'm three days off. Apologies, must be the weather. But uh, this is exactly what's happening. You have this um, outsourcing operation that are selling this as a service to other criminals. Wow. So the creator might be the same, but everybody have a certain customization to it. So you could have hundreds of these every other week, right? So you may have different criminal organizations operating the same technology. Absolutely. Absolutely. With a, with a, with a slight customization. Right. Slight customization. Uh, is this just a, a, when we look back at this one, because, you know, there seems to be, as you mentioned, every few weeks something like this, is this just another cyber attack or does this become political once it involves all of the countries that this one has? Uh, you know, outstanding question. We will need a little bit more time for that because in the end of the day, we want to see what has this caused and to what level it went. You see, and I'll give you a simple example. When you look at this particular attack and you see um, Maersk, who's one of the largest shipping companies in the world, yeah. you know, what's interesting is, yeah, did they just take them down and they wanted to make some money? Or during this process, did they actually breach confidential information and now are going to leverage it for different vessels that are traveling, which is going to fuel another organized crime ring? I mean, there are so many things that can be done. Um, so sometimes on the front, it looks yeah, like a breach and it's malware. Uh, once you start digging, it could be a little bit more than that. Uh, because of the variety of countries that this one uh, involved, was involved in, does it require a different approach? Is there more collabor- cooperation, collaboration, because it did affect all these different markets, places, countries? Not really. You see, you, when you're looking at uh, mainly businesses have have been hit, and you know, you look at Ukraine. There are banks that were hit, train station, grocery stores. It wasn't what I call directed at the government. Right. Uh, I think you know, and you know, I was watching the story unfold very closely on Saturday when the UK Parliament, you know, there was an attempt to breach uh, Parliament uh, officials and their emails and their data. If that had a, a pattern where Russia was hit by the same thing, Ukraine. Uh, other and other countries, then you could say there would be a little bit more collaboration on a government level. Unfortunately, with businesses, we're not, talk- we're not talking as much as we should. Is this an embarrassment in any way for Russia or the Ukraine, or could this happen to anybody? So this can happen to anybody, but it's definitely an embarrassment. Does it say something about their? Does it say something about their security? Uh, yes and no. You know what it says is that they're not really that much different than us. Everybody always mm. consider Russia. Uh, in particular, to have the best security in the world, that is far from the truth. Uh, they might have a lot of, uh, 
what I call very smart hackers there, a lot of security professionals, and they're extremely motivated. Uh, but they're, they're dealing with exactly the same problems everybody are having. I mean, as a matter of fact, we get called from Russian companies who say, hey, we need assistance from you. And when we ask them, well, what, what, why wouldn't you use somebody local? Their, their, their word is because everybody are corrupt here. Mm, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who's policing who? Uh, Daniel Tobak has been with us, CEO, Cytelligence Incorporated, an expert on cybersecurity. Daniel, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.